Hi listeners, Sarah here. I hope you all had a great week and are staying cool in these record high temperatures we've got going on across the country. Uh, we are back this week to conclude our own Barbenheimer opus with Alisa Lynn Valdez's two-part series on the real Los Alamos, the true story of what really happened when Oppenheimer came to Los Alamos, New Mexico to build the nuclear bomb. If you missed last week, I highly recommend you hit pause on this episode and go back and listen to that one first. But to give you a little bit of context, Alisa Lynn Valdez is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist from Los Alamos. She has spent years interviewing and writing closely about the story of Los Alamos, and specifically today's broad you should know, Loida Martinez. These two episodes, last week's and this week's, come from Elisa's own podcast called Chingona History that uncovers the extraordinary and often overlooked stories of Latinas who shaped United States history, a mission that is very near and dear to our hearts, of course, here on Broads You Should Know. I highly encourage all of you to look up Chingona History on your podcast app. I've also got a link to it in this episode's program notes and, of course, on broadsyoushouldknow.com. Like, subscribe, review, spread the word about Elisa's podcast. It's really a fantastic podcast. Part one, which we played last week with Elisa's permission, dove into the history of the land and the Hispanos who lived there when the government and Oppenheimer came to town. That's right, the land was not quote, unoccupied, or mostly unoccupied, like they say in the movie. Hundreds of native ranchers and their families were forced off their lands and out of their livelihoods, and subsequently had no choice but to work at the labs. If this is the first time you've heard mention of these atrocities, you should definitely do yourself a favor, listen to that episode. But today, in part two, Elisa brings us the story of Loida Martinez. Loida's father was one of the men who was forced off his land and who worked in the labs, where him and his fellow locals were not given protective gear, despite the fact that they were working with highly poisonous beryllium. Loida, who worked at the lab herself, ends up becoming kind of a whistleblower about all these real goings-on at the lab, and for most of her life, she has been fighting tooth and nail for the men and women, too, that worked at the labs, not only for some kind of recompense from the initial damage, but also for better pay and benefits for the employees that suffered at the labs for so long. I'm already saying too much. All of this is going to be in the episode that you're about to listen to, so I am going to let Elisa take it from here with her episode, The Other Los Alamos, Part 2, Loida Martinez. It has been a couple of weeks now since the opening of Christopher Nolan's much-hyped, fictionalized biopic of the real J. Robert Oppenheimer. The film has continued to generate fawning reviews and plenty of money. $439 $439 million worldwide as of this recording. In our last episode, we examined what the film left out, the people who were displaced to build Oppenheimer's labs in northern New Mexico, and upon whom the Manhattan Project later chose to test the world's first atomic bomb, which was detonated in the southern part of this state. 
Our special guest today is someone who has seen every stage of the development of Los Alamos National Laboratory in her community. We'll talk to her about how members of her small community were thrown off their land to make way for the labs, and how her own father was forced to work for the labs in a job so dangerous it cost him his life. We'll hear about how the labs worked to try to cover up their fault in his death and, incredibly, how his daughter grew up to fight back against this massive government entity. Welcome to Chingona History, the podcast that uncovers the extraordinary and often overlooked stories of Latinas who shaped United States history. I'm your host, best-selling author and award-winning journalist, Alisa Lynn Valdez. I'm glad you're here. Okay, it's 1998. And Loida Martinez, a 42-year-old computer scientist at Los Alamos National Labs, has applied for a fellowship with the National Hispana Leadership Institute to study at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. As part of her application, she wrote an impassioned letter, which she is here to read for us on Chingona History today. I say, as a country, we anguish over the treatment of ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Perhaps this stems from our belief that a civilized nation cannot turn a blind eye to such injustice. Images of families forced from their homes at gunpoint with little more than what they are able to carry on their backs provides a vivid reminder of a mindset we all hope had ended with World War II. Americans do not realize, however, that a similar tyranny occurred within their own borders not too long ago. It occurred as part of a national imperative to construct the world's first atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project. In the heart of northern New Mexico, where the U.S. Department of Energy runs the facility now known as the Los Alamos National Laboratory, families too were forced from their homes at gunpoint. This is a reality that DOE and elected officials have managed to keep hidden from public view for over half a century. These were the Americans whose lands were taken by force and who deserve our compassion as much as those from other countries who are treated unjustly by their own governments. These are American families who in the 1940s were at gunpoint given 48 hours to vacate their homes and though assured by government officials, their homes and surrounding lands would be returned after the war. That never occurred. These are Americans who were told that they could return over the course of a few days to retrieve livestock, furnishings, and other personal possessions left behind. But upon returning, discovered their homes bulldozed to the ground, personal possessions shrewd, and livestock set free or shot. In the few instances where there was compensation, it was minimal, presumably limited to the value of raw land, loss of livelihood, home, water, fences, livestock, crops, orchards, furnishings, equipment, and other personal belongings was largely ignored. To add insult, while this was occurring, some family members were away supporting the war effort, either as defense workers or as soldiers fighting in Europe or the Pacific. Upon their return, they encountered guards and chaining fences and a community of new arrivals who were generally biased against them and their families. For these weren't just any American homesteaders that were driven off their land. These were Hispanic 
American homesteaders, which perhaps explains why this dark episode in American history is so ignored. That's why we as Americans ponder man's inhumanity to man in other parts of the world. Perhaps we ought to take a moment to reflect on the injustices we allow at home. The letter won Loida that fellowship, and she did a lot of work to set the record straight about what had happened in her community in the early days of the Manhattan Project. It was almost the year 2000, so you would think her employer, the very same Los Alamos National Lab, would have been proud of her, happy for her, and even celebrated her fellowship. But that's not what happened. Well, in 1999, Elisa, I was chosen for the National Hispana Leadership Institute. You know that. Mm -hmm. 20 women throughout the country get selected, and I was one of them. Now, my references came from back then, uh, UN Ambassador Bill Richardson, uh, Senator Polanco from the state of California, uh, our speaker, Raymond Sanchez, our Senate Pro Tem, Manny Aragon. I mean, the elite elected officials in our uh, area. And I was going to graduate, and they didn't. The DOE put in the newsletter, elevated me in their newsletter. Lanel never mentioned it. And if, it, if they did, I believe once, it was just very minimal. But I had to pay for my this opportunity and I had to take my own personal vacation. So I was wanting to take off time to go graduate. We were graduating at the Smithsonian. And they wouldn't allow me, they didn't uh, approve my vacation. And they told me if I left, I was going to be fired. I made a phone call to um, our speaker, Raymond Sanchez. He called uh, then our director of LANO, John Brown. Five minutes later, he called me back and says, you're going, uh, have a wonderful trip and make us proud. But I had to go to those lengths that they wanted to make sure that they did everything possible from the top, bottom. It, it was like, it was, it was a plan, it was orchestrated. Um, they all knew, they were all working together and they knew what to do. It's it's just so, um, so the, the retaliation was so livid. I can't express it. Uh, it was just off the charts. So what was it exactly that the Los Alamos National Laboratory was retaliating against Loida Martinez for. Let's go back to the beginning. In 1956, Loida Martinez was born to Venancio and Margarita Martinez a couple who had roots in northern New Mexico that went back for centuries. The Los Alamos National Laboratory had been in the area for a little more than a decade by then and had started to change the way of life in that part of the world. Before the labs arrived, people lived very much as they had always lived in that area subsistence farming, 
not much of a reliance on industrialization or money, and there was very much a Pueblo Tewa approach to communal child rearing. Here's how Loida remembers growing up in Santa Cruz, a small northern New Mexico mountain town, like all of the little towns that surrounded the area that became Los Alamos. So I've, I've always said, if I had three wishes, one of my wishes would be to live back, live my childhood back, because I lived such a simple, innocent life. It was just beautiful. We didn't have money, but so when it snowed, we'd get cardboard boxes and we'd go to a hill and we'd slide down in the cardboard boxes. We didn't have money to go to the swimming pool, so we'd have the irrigation ditch, the acequia, yeah. And we'd get a shovel and, and dig out it so it could be at least knee deep, right? And we were small. <laughs> and then we'd come out all wet and we'd put mud all over us. Today you spend hundreds of dollars for one session. We used to get it all the time, right? Um, but we could go home. My mom in the winter would have baked cookies for us or, or hot chocolate. It was always so precious, you know? Our hands frozen stiff. Uh, I mean, just a simple life. Um, our type of crime was we went to the neighbors because they had bigger cherries or bigger apples or whatever or sweeter and so we'd go and steal from them right I mean it wasn't stealing but it was just cute it was just so simple so innocent yeah and today it's so complicated uh, I had a beautiful um it was beautiful, my upbringing. It was just so innocent and so pure. I didn't even know we were poor. And right. uh, you never felt it. But of course, I always said, those are my, that's one of my wishes, but I'm sure my mom and dad wouldn't want to go back to those days because they struggled. They worked hard just to provide for their children. As simple as it was, they provided for us. And we always had food on the table. We had, my dad would raise a, a animal and then he'd butcher it for the winter and we'd eat it. There was one uh, lamb, we called him Blackie. We, he became our pet, but my dad had to kill it. Oh, oh it, it, I know, but it was food on the table. We cried and cried, but that was, that was the way of life. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like we, you know, things were different back then. We planted a garden. Um, we ate really organic. My, we ate beans and chili and tortillas every day until my brother came, and then they pull out the pot roast, you know, the meat, right. for when he came to, so that he could eat. Uh, because he too probably, more than likely in college, was suffering too, right? He wasn't eating like he once used to eat. And so, I mean, it was tough for my parents. But I remember when my dad, my, with my dad, he tiptoed back and forth. So proud of my brother when he graduated from high school and he was valedictorian of his class. The, my dad just shined. He was so proud of him. What high school was that? Santa Cruz High School. Okay. It doesn't exist any longer. My brother was a basketball player also and I was a cheerleader. Yeah. So we, you know, we went to all the games together and such. And we went in, a, in school buses back in the, well, you still go, but the school buses are much more sophisticated than they are, to, you know, back in today. 
they're much more sophisticated than back when we were we were uh, in high school. But it was just the innocence of uh, growing up. It was beautiful. It's not enough to merely say the U.S. government came and threw some farmers off their land to build the labs. What happened in the Los Alamos region of northern New Mexico was, in stark microcosm, the journey of human beings as we have transitioned away from traditional society to an industrialized one. And here in the United States, to an industrial society that is built almost entirely upon the business of war making. So you had small Hispano and Native American communities who by then shared many of their customs and much of their DNA, living harmoniously and simply off the land in one of the most strikingly beautiful places on the planet. They had been living this way for tens of thousands of years and always had enough. Now, dropped into the middle of this idyllic setting is not just some random government facility, but the nation's first laboratory for creating the world's first weapon of mass destruction. So consider the contrasts, rural versus urban, traditional versus modern, spiritual versus scientific, sacred versus secular. And in the minds of the U.S. government at the time, white people, whom they viewed as more advanced and civilized, and brown people, who were treated as subhuman in keeping with the policies of displacement and dehumanization that began in the mid-19th century with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 and continued to escalate all the way through the Depression-era policy of Herbert Hoover, who sought to blame the Great Depression on Mexicans rather than to be held accountable for his own terrible policies. So men like Venancio Martinez, who'd inherited land in the area, who'd been able to raise families and thrive without money because they still understood how to live from the land. These men and their families were suddenly landless and destitute, forced to adjust to not just the labs, but to an entirely new and foreign way of looking at the value of human beings themselves, the value of the land, the value of animals, the value of everything. Industrialization, the concept pioneered by early capitalists like Adam Smith changed the very foundation of how our species 
came to understand the concept of work. Smith was a proponent not of balance and harmonious coexistence with the natural world, but of endless growth and surplus production in the name of profit. Why teach a blacksmith to make a nail, Adam Smith argued, when you could create a factory and reduce each worker down to making one part of that nail as fast as possible on an assembly line. Men like Benancio Martinez, men who considered the yearly ceremonial clearing of the irrigation ditches to be the work of holy men, because water was understood to be scarce and sacred, were no longer able to spend their days solving problems, reading the sky, reading the land, at one with all that was. They were reduced in an instant and by military force to cogs in a machine whose sole aim was and remains to kill as many people as possible. So this is the transition period in her own father's life during which Loida Martinez is growing up with her siblings in this idyllic setting. Her father goes to work for Los Alamos National Labs when she's a little girl, trying his best to adapt to this new definition of fatherhood manhood, work, value. He goes to work for the labs, but he's not welcomed by men like J. Robert Oppenheimer as an equal. He's welcomed as a servant, as a low-paid laborer who is so disposable that he's put to work with toxic chemicals like beryllium, with no protective gear whatsoever, even though his white supervisors all had such protective gear when and if they came close to the chemicals at all. Put simply, the labs mistreated Lloyd's father and other workers because there was just this racist belief that such people were inferior, not as intelligent, not worth protecting, superstitious, impoverished, uncivilized. But what they didn't count on was Loida Martinez. Unbeknownst to her, Loida Martinez was born as what we would now define a gifted child, as was her brother, and probably her parents too, because gifted kids tend to fall very close on the IQ spectrum to their parents. She went straight to work at the labs when she was 18 after graduating from high school. She got a job as a secretary. But, being whip-smart, she immediately recognized that 
there were other ways to make a living at the labs that would pay her more. So she inquired about being put through school by the lab that was putting other types of workers through their college education. But in her case, they turned her down. After all, she was just a secretary. So Lloyda went to night school on her own dime while working as a, a secretary at the labs, and she got her Bachelor of Science degree in computer science with a concentration in mathematics from the College of Santa Fe, and then went on to get a Master of Business Administration with a concentration in management information systems. She was promoted, and then the trouble began. Newly armed with her education, which had given her the ability to conduct research, including data analysis, Moida began to look into the records at the labs. She was particularly interested in the pay and protection that had been afforded to the local people, people in her community and in her own family who had worked at the labs as janitors, construction workers, house cleaners, child care workers in Los Alamos. What she found blew her mind. Thousands of America's former nuclear bomb builders, she discovered, were sick, dying, or already dead because of their exposure to beryllium, radiation, and other poisons. And the government knew about it and did nothing to help. Hispanos in her own community had labored for decades, often under suffocating secrecy, handling the most hazardous of materials with lax or non-existent safety precautions as they assembled America's new stockpile of nuclear weapons. Lloyda says many lived a great part of their lives suffering from illnesses caused by beryllium, and those many included her own father. Thus began Lloyda's first fight with Los Alamos in joining together with other community members to lobby Congress to afford the victims of this neglect some reparation for the pain and harm it caused. She was successful, but it didn't come soon enough for her dad. My father and many others, they got sick. At that point in time, there was no compensation. My dad died in 1991. There wasn't compensation till 2000 with all our advocacy, and not only mine, but so many others, right? 2000, well, the laboratory was still in deadly denial. Yeah. So there was compensation, but to be awarded the compensation was just terrible. So it took another four years of advocacy for, for Congress to tell the Department of Labor to be more compassionate, fair, and timely. So I know in my father's situation, um, 
the medical records weren't readily available. Congressman Tom Udall was, um, was involved at that time. He finally got access to the medical records. I know, know uh, on my father's situation, he sent his staff to Los Alamos National Laboratory and to go retrieve the medical records and they were in sheds. The staff had to look through the medical records and they were all rat infested. They weren't, uh -huh. you know. So, but we started to get access that way. But my father never got, my father passed away in 91. He never received compensa compensation, my mother either. And she died approximately 16 months later. So, but I have a sister that was diagnosed positive negative because of the dust my father more than likely brought home from a beryllium. Yeah. So they've always tested her positive negative. What does uh, that mean? For beryllosis? Yes. Uh, but, um, and it was suspe suspected that um, because of my dad went, took a, his lunch, his clothes, the dust was in his in his clothes so he'd bring it home right and so those those were the hardships you know when they first diagnosed my father they said he had COPD but they wouldn't let him see any of the medical records so he died thinking he had COPD and when he was a teenager he smoked a little right just like many young teenagers but never smoked after that when until doctors affiliated with the labs yes yes okay so that they're knowingly lying to him uh yes it's a company him? town it, and it's always been a company town so until our congress our at that time our congressman got involved didn't they, did we not have the true access to the medical records but again i say they were in sheds uh rat infested uh sheds that are the staff Tom Udall's staff had to go and look for them. So that's when we knew exactly that my father had passed away with a viriliosis because there was a doctor that documented it, but they put it away. Wow. But you know, I left in 2008 and I signed a um, document requesting all my medical records. To date, I've never received them either. So practices have not changed. Yeah. And uh, maybe some do, but I haven't personally received my medical records. And why? Makes you wonder. You would think that after all of that effort from the advocates and from officials like Tom Udall and from the United States Congress and the Department of Energy, that Los Alamos National Labs would change but as recently as 2018, the Department of Energy cited Los Alamos National Labs again for failure to produce adequate protocols or record keeping or protective measures for people working with beryllium. As Loida and more people of color 
began to get their education and compete with white upper-level workers for the coveted jobs at the labs, the labs retaliated. They began to announce reduction in force, which they said was due to budget shortfall. But when Loida and others looked into that, it turned out there was no budget shortfall at all. They had used the reduction in force as an excuse to fire hundreds of Hispanic and native workers and replaced them with white workers. But again, they had not bargained on Loida Martinez and she fought back. She filed two class action lawsuits against the labs for discriminating against Hispanic and Native American workers and for paying women and non-white workers less. She won both cases. It wasn't only one lawsuit. I was part of the reduction in force. Then I was also uh, filed a complaint with the Department of Energy for whistleblower status. Right. And then the class action lawsuit. There, there were two class action lawsuits for the reduction right. of force. And then, so just to clarify all that, and the whistleblower complaint, it, it involved money too. I called it institutionalized racism. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can't think they're mind setting, but you know, when you start to see the practices and the patterns, well, it, you, you start to understand what's happening here. Even with the two wins and the other lobbying efforts that were successful, it was often too little too late for the workers who were affected by the time the reparations came around. So, but by that time, uh, so many people had passed away. Some got their jobs back, but they didn't receive the medical benefits or the years of service. And so they started at year one. So their pensions oh. basically went out the window, right? And their medical uh, insurances. And let me just go on and on. After my tweet about Oppenheimer, the film, ignoring the Hispano and native and rural population of New Mexico went viral with mention of Loida in it. Many media outlets in the US and around the world jumped on the story, including one wire service who ran a story that they believed, the reporter told me this, was balanced because they had also spoken with local Hispano families who had nice things to say about the labs because the labs were putting their kids through college or offering them internships and jobs. What that reporter didn't realize is that it's not balanced to tell Loida's story and then say, but other people see it see the labs as not being so bad. When, if he had dug a little deeper, he would have found out the only reason those programs that those parents are complimenting exist is Loida Martinez and her advocacy. 
she specifically asked for those things? So when, one time that I was in D.C., I met with uh, Senator, Senator Domenici, Senator Bingaman, Bill Richardson, uh, Congressman Bill Richardson. And Senator Domenici was a very pa- uh, powerful senator back then. And he yeah. tells me, literally tells me, what is it going to take for you guys to shut up? Good Lord. Were those his exact and, words? Yes. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, what do you have to offer northern New Mexico? So at the end of the day, <clears throat> what happened was the Lano Foundation came about. That first year, every student that applied to be an intern at the laboratory got hired. That was the first time ever. And then the other programs began to evolve. But it was because of this advocacy is why all this happened. They won't admit it, but I know that because I had the conversation with them. That's what they offered. And, but of course it still didn't stop us because there was just so much more. They had to compensate the homesteaders. They had to compensate the people that were sick, but they made, they were, you know, Lattle was such in deadly denial. It was like pulling teeth. And then the Equal Pay Act, my God, why couldn't they pay us like others? We finally got a a copy of all the salaries and what we say, at that point in time, I wished that I hadn't even uh, had the education behind me because then I knew how to do the math and I saw all the injustices in, on our salaries and I thought, oh my God, maybe it would have been better that I didn't know this, but now that I do know it, it it's upsetting. How can we survive and have, you know, be respected? Uh, I mean, all these rich Anglos that came in for the Manhattan Project, they all moved to Santa Fe. Lots of money. Look what happened to Santa Fe today. The Hispanics that live in the outskirts, and you can't even afford to live in Santa Fe. Lloyda really made me think about the way that Hollywood not only ignored the history of what was going on there, but also what's happening now. Even though you'll find the occasional TV series now about urban gentrification and Hispanos or Latinos, nobody is telling the story of rural gentrification at the hands of organizations like the Los Alamos National Labs that make sure that only a certain kind of person can afford housing and other basic necessities in that area by paying those people more for the same work than they pay darker people and women. That's going to happen to us too. In Chimayo, you should see all the people coming from outside here. It's it's a beautiful place. It is. But... uh, Many families are selling their property because they're poor. Many can't even pay their taxes. Loida chose an early retirement rather than continuing to beat her head against the walls of injustice at Los Alamos National Labs. 
she and her high school sweetheart husband, Fidel, now spend their days on the chili farm that's been in Fidel's family for many years. The Hispano and Native American communities that surround Los Alamos National Lab now are mired in some of the worst poverty and generational trauma problems in the entire world. Many people who try to figure out how to solve the problems of poverty and drug addiction and hopelessness in our region love to point to education as the key to getting out so that people can get good jobs at places like the labs. But nobody is looking to the past to see what might have been lost for all of us. No one's looking at traditional society as having solutions to these problems. This isn't to say education isn't important, or a job isn't important, or work isn't important. But it is to say, maybe, here and everywhere, human society needs to start to look to the past to rethink the notion of work, the value of human beings, the land, and the animals, and the wisdom or lack thereof in putting all of your education to work making weapons to destroy yourself and others. But ed what it, my education did to me was it just made me a lot more uh, smarter to understand what was happening around me. And I'm saying it's so wrong. Right. Maybe I should have st not gotten my education so I could have just pretend <laughs> that nothing was happening and I could have stayed numb. I think the Oppenheimer film tries to grapple with what has been lost, but it fails to do so because it does not look beyond the man who created the bomb himself for the answer. The story I'd like to see deals with the native communities into which the Manhattan Project inserted itself as being every bit the equal of the people who came and perhaps having answers and solutions to the problems that plague us now, if only we would listen. This has been Chingona History. I'm your host, Elisa Lynn Valdez. I'm also the engineer the researcher, the producer, well, everything. It's just me. I'm glad you're here. Sarah here again with another reminder to make sure that you like, follow, and subscribe to Chingona History, Elisa Lynn Valdez's podcast, which we listened to today and last week. You can find it on all of your podcasting platforms, or you can grab the links from this episode's show notes, or on our website at broadsyoushouldknow.com. This officially concludes our month-long Barbenheimer deep dive on Broads You Should Know. If you missed the first two episodes, which covered the Barbie movie side of the Barbenheimer, then 
check those out. They're a little bit lighter listening than this was. Thank you, as always, for listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing Broads You Should Know. That helps new listeners to find us every single day. I hope you continue to stay safe and cool in these crazy temperatures, and we will see you next week for another Broad You Should Know.